there's research that shows that once you pass, I think it's 60 feet distance from your desk, the likelihood that you'll talk to someone outside of that radius drops dramatically. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Today, I had the pleasure to sit down with Michael Soto, a brilliant guy that is one of the co-founders of Spark Collaboration, a very cool platform and technology that arranges randomized coffee meetings amongst those within an organization that would not typically have the opportunity to meet. As you'll quickly tell, Michael's functioning on an IQ that's a standard deviation above mine, but was kind enough to keep me in the conversation. Speaking of which, we spent a good portion of our discussion on his company. Today's conversation was very academic in nature, with a focus on Michael Soto's company, Spark Collaboration. This conversation focuses on his company, the history of his company, and how important relationships are for organizations, specifically when it comes to new ideas. Some of the topics that we covered are what is serendipity as a strategy, how organizations are supporting internal networking, open floor plans, innovation as novel connections and employee engagement, and one of my favorite topics, the strength of weak ties. Michael's done some interesting work, has a great product, and knows the power of making real connections. So, without further ado, let me take you to my conversation with Michael Soto. Enjoy. Michael, I appreciate you being in the house. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. There's a lot we're going to talk about today. Why don't you tell everyone who's not familiar with Michael Soto who you are, and then we'll dig into some of the questions that I have about your background and about Spark. So my name is Michael Soto. I'm co-founder of Spark Collaboration. Over the past six plus years, I've helped organizations build stronger internal networks. Before that, I've worked in the social sector, in innovation, international development, in New York, in Colombia, in the UK, in Bangladesh, and a range of different places. Yeah, nice pedigree you've got there. You went to Harvard, and where did you go in the UK? I went to Harvard for my undergrad. I went to the University of Sussex in the UK for master's, and I'm currently doing a PhD at the University of Minnesota. Fantastic. So tell me, Michael, if you could rewind back your career a little bit to your experience with Nesta, the UK Innovation Foundation. Sure. So I was at Nesta in 2012 and 13. It was after the MA program. And so we had, I think it was like six months or so that I could work there through the visa. And I noticed that Nesta is a really interesting place where there's, I like to say that they follow everything that's shiny and new because the innovation could sort of be in the edge of any particular field. And so there were work being done in education and, and workforce development and gaming. Gaming is a form of supporting education, international development, and all these different fields. And so it was an organization of about 100 people and with a constant turnover because with a new project came new people as well. And so one of the questions that I had is, how do you stay on top of everything? How do you know who's working on what and what's going on in the organization because there's such high change? And I asked one of the directors that, 
and they didn't have a good sense of an answer. So we started brainstorming, come up with ideas, and we came up with a full range of ideas. The one that he really liked was this idea of what if we randomly pair people to have coffee together, to get together and talk with someone that you don't usually speak to. And that's where the idea of randomized coffee trials came. Randomized coffee trials because Nesta ran a lot of randomized control trials. So we took out the control and threw in some coffee Mm -hmm. for good measure. And what were some of the outcomes of these coffee trials? Walk us through them, actually, if you could. What exactly did that mean? Who met? And Right. As I said earlier, the organization was about 100 staff. The physical space, it was about an L shape. And in the middle was a sort of cafeteria where people could go and grab coffee and such. But what we noticed is that people would tend to grab coffee with their coworkers or their friends and always with the same sort of group of people. And so you had people from sort of the corners of the L's that never spoke to each other, had no idea what they were working or what they were doing. And so it was a rather simple initiative at the start where we sent out an email and said, are you interested in meeting other colleagues in the organization? If so, fill out this quick Google form, sign up. And then each week, we'll introduce you to someone new. And over the course of that week, you're invited to grab coffee and get to know them. And so it became something that people look forward to, you know, because I usually sent it at Friday at 3 p.m. And so people were oftentimes, I was told, waiting, waiting for the email to come out. And of course, this was a sort of side thing. And so if I actually had a work meeting, then it wouldn't go out at 3. It might go out at 3.30. So people would be upset or were wondering what was going on. So... There are huge benefits. I mean, we had people from different units who found out that they were working on something relatively similar, just from different angles, or they could learn a lot from each other. We had people who, I remember one case in particular, it was a sort of diagonal relationship. So one employee was matched with a director, someone at a higher level from a different unit or department. And through that conversation, it became clear that there was a lot more opportunity for collaboration between the two divisions than was previously known, even though the directors met, I forget if it was on a weekly basis or so, but just the nature of those conversations were different than sort of a casual conversation over coffee with someone else. And so that helped develop new opportunities of collaboration between the departments. Interesting. So was this, people had to opt into it? Were they prepared for the conversations? Do you prep them for this? Or this is just, hey, we're just going to match up two random people and you're going to have coffee. Yeah. So, and I think my position on this has solidified over the years. I think it's really important that it be opt-in because if you're sitting across from someone who doesn't want to be there, it's just going to make the conversation miserable. Or more likely, the person is just not going to respond to the email, which is going to make you feel as if the initiative isn't working or it's a waste of your time or it's just really discouraging that way. So I strongly advocate that it be opt-in. And then in the idea of prompting people about conversation topics, again, I think this is perhaps there's more room for debate on this, but I am very open to, or I very much encourage it to be open. And so we sent out the introductions then and also now with minimal context. The two of you work at the same organization and you might share some of your social profiles, like your LinkedIn or your Twitter or something, so you might have a sense of who the person is, what department they work for. But beyond that, it's for the two of you to chat and to get to know each other and talk about whatever you'd like. I remember one of the ones that I participate in, and I still remember some six years later, was with a woman whom we sat down and we spent maybe half an hour or so, maybe even 45 minutes. And in the entire time, we talked about 
our respective partners and our marriage, how we met our partner, what it had been like at different stages. And it was really interesting. I'd recently gotten married, I think two years before or so, and she'd been married for much longer. And so she gave me some advice and so on and so forth. And so from one perspective, one might think that that's sort of a quote unquote waste of time from the organization's perspective. But I strongly disagree because we built a bond which was personal and which was strong. And so then in the future, whenever I needed to get information from that department or advice, which was work-related, I could reach out to this person and say, hey, yo, we remember we had coffee the other day. Could you help me with this or that? And then the response is so much warmer and so much more enthusiastic and energetic. You can imagine, I'm sure many of the listeners have perhaps reached out to someone at their company at a different department and asked for information. It's just like, oh, sure, yeah, I can help you. Or, you know, I'm busy right now, but I'll do this later. It's completely different when you've had that sort of personal connection. And so even though during those 30 minutes or so, we didn't end up talking about how our work overlaps or what opportunities to collaborate, it transformed our relationship in such a way that moving forward, we were able to collaborate much better. I think that's great. Now, is this something where people are meeting? Is there a follow-up? So you met with her. Was there any follow-up from the technical product that you've built? Like, hey, fill out this form. What was your experience? What were your takeaways? Right. So at this point, maybe just distinguishing between what the initiative looked like in 2012 uh, as randomized coffee trials and what now is Spark Collaboration. So yeah, when, so let's talk about Spark Collaborations then, I guess. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. So when we did in 2012, it was completely manually based. People would sign up to a Google form. I would randomly match people with formulas in Excel, and then I'd do a mail merge to send out emails. And so it's certainly something that individuals can do manually, and we've seen and actually encourage other groups to do manually as well to get sort of their feet wet and to see that this is something that they want to handle, they want to do. It becomes really difficult to manage as time goes on and you want to manage who's going on vacation or who's leaving or who needs a break, all sorts of different things like that. And so we developed Spark Collaboration at the end of 2013, which is a software platform that automates the entire process. And one of the things that the platform does is that two weeks after the introduction, it sends up a follow-up email and asks individuals if they've met or not yet. And then following that, you can get personalized feedback or surveys asking what they got out of the meeting, if they learned more about the organization, developed a stronger sense of belonging, if they found a new opportunity to collaborate, and that can all be tailored, personalized, depending upon the organizational needs. So within the platform of Spark Collaboration, yes, there is a follow-up to see, get some self-reported data of, of how the meeting went, what they got out of it and things of that sort. So you had an opportunity, or I guess, had you met with her today with this new version, the Spark Collaboration version, you'd be able to then read, I guess, her insights on the meeting? Or is this more that it's like a report that gets generated for whoever the administrator is, it's facilitating? Yeah, it's the latter. So it's okay. for the administrators to get a sense of how the meetings are going, what value is coming from the meetings, whether to make any tweaks to the initiative. I mean, this is an, a great product. What types of organizations are taking advantage of this? A full range of organizations. A lot of them are based in the UK, actually, but we have government entities, we have multinational companies, we have nonprofit companies, we have had associations, professional groups, because really it's agnostic to the type of organization. It's more an issue of size. So we typically work with organizations that are let's say about 100 employees plus, 
Because what you tend to see, if you think about, or if you worked in a really small company that has, I don't know, maybe a dozen people or less, this happens sort of naturally, right? You talk to people and you see people all the time because there's only a dozen of you or however many there are. The problem that emerges as a, as a company grows, as an organization grows, what you especially see in organizations that are growing rapidly is that you start to lose that sense of belonging or community or familiarity with people. And so at a company or organization the size of 100 or 1,000 or even going up above that, your relationships tend to be defined by two things. They're defined by a function, what you work on, what department you're on, what working group you're in, and they are defined by space. What part of the office you're on, are you on the third floor, fourth? It makes a huge difference for who you end up talking to. There's research that shows that once you pass, I think it's 60 feet distance from your desk, the likelihood that you'll talk to someone outside of that radius drops dramatically. You're kidding me. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. And so it, it's, that. it it's so much more with a pair of stairs or an elevator or things of that sort. And so part of what Spark does is it facilitates that moving around. So some other places do like hot desking where they force you to move around. There are architectural designs that are shaped to cause what are called casual collisions. But I think the critique that I have for those is it, it forces that in moments when you may not want that or may not have time for that. Whereas the way that Spark Collaboration works is you get an email introduction and you're being introduced to someone from a different part of the organization who, by consequence, has a different network than you do. So you're not just introduced to a person, but you're also introduced to the network that they're a part of. And you can arrange the meeting whenever it's convenient for you over the course of the month. And so it facilitates the benefits that a lot of companies are doing by investing in open spaces, open offices, or creating casual collisions, but facilitated in a way that it's convenient for the individual. That's fantastic. That levels the playing field. What about or have you run into the situation where maybe it's the senior executive sees that he or she is paired with the intern that's in, which is obviously phenomenal benefit, at least in the surface, for the intern, but maybe the perceived value to the executive it's just not the same. Do they get turned downs? And if so, is that okay? Is that accepted in this? So all of this is really sort of organization specific and depending upon the culture and the individuals involved. I mean, we've had a number of instances where the CEO has been paired with the intern or something similar of that sort. And the CEO very wisely recognizes that it's not just a benefit for the intern, but it's a benefit for the CEO as well, because the CEO gets a different perspective on the company and what's going on in the company that they don't usually get. Even a CEO in most companies, organizations are very hierarchical. And so CEO gets the same sort of information from their advisors and the people around them. They don't often talk to someone who's on the outside who can tell them how it is and tells them, this is what I've heard and these are the issues that I see. And I tell my boss this, but my boss doesn't pay attention to me. And so you probably never heard this before. And so we have had instances where sort of CEO or C-level directors are not interested in participating because of this belief that it isn't of value to them. But I think they're wrong, frankly. And I think that a number of the C executive suite that we've spoken to that have participated see value in meeting the intern and whoever it might be because of the fresh perspective that it provides. The other thing to keep in mind is this is half an hour or something. It's a coffee, yeah. right? So it's. I think it's the benefits far outweigh the costs. Yeah. So no prompting whatsoever, though, in terms of questions or how to facilitate some of these meetings. This is strictly setting them up to have this meeting. Yes. So the Spark Collaboration platform 
provides a space where organizations can put prompting if they want to give guiding questions or these are sorts of things that you can ask or we want to theme it so that this month when you're meeting, you should talk about this and next month you can talk about this other thing or whatever it might be. But my personal preference or what I recommend is to have no prompt at all and just let people have the conversation flow more naturally in in unexpected directions. What kind of feedback are you getting on these meetings? Like how is this impacting organizations? So, I mean, we generally talk about three things. We talk about employment engagement, we talk about knowledge management, we talk about innovation, and I can talk about each of those. But even just on a more basic level, I think people learn a lot about the organization and learn about their role in the organization, and they feel part of the organization in a much deeper way. Oftentimes, the conversation or the response is something similar to what I said before. It was like, oh, I didn't realize that Johnny was working on something so similar, so interesting, and now we're planning to have a follow-up meeting to work on this or to talk about that or whatever it might be. So that has ripple effects, as I said, for employee engagement, knowledge management, innovation, which I can talk to separately. But for the most part, I think it's understanding one's own role in the organization, the value that one contributes, and learning more about the organization as well. Interesting. Any relationships, and I don't mean just friendly relationships, spawn as a result of your technology? I'm sure that they have. I mean, we've worked with many, many organizations over the years. It isn't the purpose, and so we don't track that or don't monitor that in any way. Of course, you could ask the same sort of thing of how many relationships have stemmed from the cafeteria on your corporate office. It's I I actually doubt that many. I bet yours has got more. I'll tell you, the reason I ask is I did a workshop myself for a technology firm, a healthcare technology firm about a year or two ago. It was really interesting. So I I run a drill where I get people to interact with each other and I teach them how to ask the right types of questions to get a little deeper as opposed to the superficial conversations of the weather and where do you live and things of that nature. So I get a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from uh, one of the managing directors or partners of the firm. And he says, Adam, I've got some good news and I get some bad news for you. I said, oh, Jesus, what what, what the heck is the bad news? He says, well, your workshop was so successful that we've got two new relationships within the company. And I said, oh, no. I'm like, what kind of relationships? And it's like, well, they're dating. So good news is people are talking. Bad news is they really weren't looking to foster relationships within the company. But what what I found really interesting is that one of the couples that spawned from the workshop that I did, they worked in the same department and they were in the same room. And the room was picture, I don't know if this is about 2,000 square feet, a little less than that. That was the room. So not that big. And these people had never talked before. They worked in the same department. They sat within, I don't know, 10 desks of each other and never spoken before. So I thought that was really interesting. So that's why I have a feeling that a lot of you've probably created more relationships than you know of. Certainly. Again, it's not our focus, and so we don't know that much about it. But a similar story, which I heard, which just reminds me of, is we did a project with the International Federation for the Red Cross and Red Crescent, and they wanted to bring together people, volunteers and staff across the globe. And so they used Spark, and they created three separate initiatives, one in English, one in for French speakers and Spanish speakers. And the idea was that you'd always be paired with someone from a different country. So Spark, there was a drop-down menu. 
It's a functionality we call subgroups, which is usually used for like departments or business units within the organization. But in this case, it was, it was the entire country. And so the dropdown just said country and you're expected to pick your country. So if you're based in Brazil, Croatia, or wherever it is, it's pretty straightforward. What we and the, the admin team at the, the International Federation for the Red Cross and Red Crescent didn't take into consideration was that people in the headquarters in Switzerland could interpret this in two ways, the country of origin that they sort of are associated with and that the fact that in Switzerland. And so we had people, we had two people paired in the headquarters in Switzerland who actually were right down the hall from each other, but they had sort of different countries of origin. So they put their country of origin rather than Switzerland. And they were introduced to each other. Initially, it was like, oh, this was a fault in the, in the system because we were introduced to someone in the same office. But in fact, they hadn't actually spoken to each other because they were, as a similar case, right down the hall from each other, which hadn't spoken to each other. So it's amazing how the sort of distance that can exist even amongst people who physically are rather close. Were they more than 60 feet? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the details, but yeah. yeah. That's funny. So what about, do you know of any ideas or any products that might have been spawned as a result of some of these conversations? Because I guess you're getting like the edge effect, if you will. I don't know if you're familiar with that or two kind of like different, I guess it came from was it agriculture when two different like climates kind of merged and it created a product. I don't know if it was like whether it's a tree or a grass, mm. that's what's where the edge effect comes from. But the, with ideas, mm -hmm. that's usually when like two different departments come together and then they bring the best of their ideas together. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if things like that have resulted. I'm sure they have. I didn't know if you knew of any in particular. Yeah, they do. And just to give it a different name. So we're familiar with that for Stephen Johnson, like where, where good ideas come from. And he talks about sort of half hunches. You walk around with a half hunch and it isn't until you sort of bump into someone who has the other half that they sort of fit together in a sort of puzzle uh, piece that, yeah. that you have this sort of new idea coming around. So I wasn't familiar with the edge effect, but it's basically the same concept. There are a number of different cases. There was actually, going back to the Red Cross as well, there was a case between individuals who were paired from different countries where they realized that in the other country they were implementing the process, a particular process in a certain way, which hadn't occurred to them in their home office. And so they learned from each other and adapted those processes. And there are lots of different cases of those sorts. For the most part, those are, again, organization-specific, and that's sort of proprietary to the organization. So yeah. I don't have a lot of tangible or concrete examples that I can share other than acknowledging that, yes, I have heard that that happens quite a bit. Yeah. What's your argument for organizations to encourage them, other than to buy your software and to make some money, <laughs> why should they be doing this? Why should people from all different areas, all different levels interact? Yeah. So when we work with organizations, we try and identify what their existing priorities are. Because if it's an employee engagement, then we can present an argument and explain how this helps, as I was saying before, to feel more connected to the organization, to get a better sense of your role in the organization, the value of your that you contribute in the organization. And if it's knowledge management, we talk about how having a sense of who's doing what and what they're working on, being better able to access resources within the organization who's knowledgeable and who's an expert in a particular field. Lots of organizations have databases or have some sort of internal social media where they can message everyone and say, oh, I have this question, this issue. And both of those work, whether it's database or the sort of social media approach. But in both cases, as I sort of alluded to earlier, it's fundamentally different if you actually have those relationships to go to. On the one hand, on the database, 
you can only codify things in a certain way. Whereas through conversation, you might realize that what you're looking for can be understood in a separate way. And that's only going to come about by talking to someone who looks at what you're working at in a different lens. And then that person would say, oh, you should really talk to John or Mary or Bob or Susan or whoever it might be. And that's, I think, much more efficient and more human. I think people appreciate that more than the sort of database. And then innovation very much is along the lines of the edge factor that you were talking about, whether Stephen Johnson, where do good ideas come from? So we first try and identify work with potential clients about what are their priorities and what are their goals, and then talk about how shaping and transforming relationships within the organization help facilitate those goals. That's great. Now, do you find certain departments gravitate more towards something like this, whether it's more people that are in sales or your typical quote-unquote extroverts, or do you see introverts really pulling to this or attracted to this because introverts, they can do better in one-on-one conversations. Yeah. So we see benefits for both. Uh, I remember the story of one individual who was describing how they were an extrovert and they were constantly reaching out to people within the organization, asking them to grab coffee or to give them advice or just to meet up for lunch. And they were saying that even though they were extroverted within the organization, they sort of had this wall that they had to fight and explain why am I asking you for your time or what What do you want from me sort of thing? And so this, when they started using Spark Collaboration, it provided a context for even if the meetup wasn't through Spark, it's like, oh, that's what you want to do. You want to get together and talk about what we're working on and have coffee in and sort of an informational casual way. And so even for extroverts, we've heard that it provides a sort of framework in the organization for other people to be more receptive to their extrovertedness, I guess. And then with the introverted, as you said, A, one-on-one, not for all, but for many introverts, it's more comfortable than being in a larger group setting. And then also it removes the sense of having to reach out to someone because this platform or this technology has said we should get together, so let's get together and talk, as opposed to, oh, I have to reach out to so-and-so, what will they think if I email them or so on? We've seen benefits for both extrovert and introvert. In terms of departments or divisions, I think it's also sort of been a range and there isn't necessarily one sales marketing or or such that that stands out. Interesting. And are you finding, if you're finding more buy-in from the more senior levels, more buy-in from the junior levels, is it pretty evenly distributed? Yeah, again, I think it's organization specific. So sometimes we have it from the senior level that says this is something that we want to do. And then we work with them to get the word out and to motivate and encourage everyone else to sign up. In many other cases, we have people who are rather junior who start this as a sort of pilot or, or something on a small scale. And then we help them build the case to convince senior leadership. So we've had both cases where we have sort of an energetic, interested party, either at senior leadership or in junior level. And then in either case, we try and convince the other side. Interesting. And I'm surprised that more people haven't reached out to you to help them with the conversation itself. Because one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of people just stuck. So they don't know the right questions to ask or to carry the conversation. You haven't run into that? Or is that something that could benefit this? We've heard that from some folks. And I certainly think that there is room for either training or guidelines around conversation. I think there's also the danger of sort of over-engineering that though mm, yep. and limiting the value of it. The value of it, in, from my perspective in some sense, is that when two people come together, they don't have a predefined topic that they have to talk about. 
and it can flow in lots of different directions. And so you could imagine a sort of training or a, a set of guidelines says, first ask X, then ask Y, and then ask Z. And these are like the three topics that you're, you're going to go about. And I think that would kill a lot of the value. You could have a training which helps people with the sort of ambiguity a bit more. And that I think that could contribute to this quite a bit. We just haven't done that at the moment. Yeah, I'm also just thinking about, hey, if I'm an organization, I'm a large organization, and maybe I'm forget about just because they don't have anything to talk about, but maybe I'd have some goals that I don't know what kind of company I am, but maybe you just threw out a random question for these two random people to try mm -hmm. to figure out. And mm -hmm. then you're getting those two, these polar perspectives. And maybe that's the thing that starts the conversation. I don't know. I'm just mm -hmm. kind of spitballing off the top of my head. I mean, I think this could work well with a sort of crowdsourcing project or initiative where you have an end goal and you want people to talk about a particular topic or challenge and work together. And then over a period of a couple of months, meet different people to get different perspectives around that large or overarching sort of project goal, challenge, whatever it might be. I think that that you'd have to make sure that you have sort of the quote unquote, the right people involved in that. Because then if it's something that perhaps I don't have something of insight to say, then I would feel like I couldn't contribute or I shouldn't participate. It depends, I guess, in part what it is that you're trying to do as an organization why you're doing this. So if you have this central goal that you want people to talk about and work towards, you could certainly theme the initiative around that. And it could help sort of crowdsource and surface new ideas and new perspectives on that. And that works for that particular project. It could also just be a more open element about unifying and creating a sense of belonging and corporate culture and such. So it could work either way. Cool. So let's switch gears for a second. I want you to tell me a little bit about what serendipity as a strategy is. This is tied to what I was mentioning before about the casual collisions. There's actually a blog piece that I wrote, which is called Serendipity Strategy, which describes a bit of this Steve Jobs was famously wanted a single bathroom in the Apple buildings, or at least a single location for the bathrooms, so that people would go from the respective building that they were in towards this one location, and their paths would converge. They'd bump into each other and accidentally perhaps start a conversation or something of the sort. Yeah, he was big into getting people from different areas to... And then I think it's the Bloomberg office in New York which the elevator goes up to about the fourth floor. It opens up there. That's a sort of cafeteria. And then from there, you can get an elevator to any of the other floors in the building. It's an awesome building, by the way. And then it's the same logic, right? So if you create a sort of bottleneck on the fourth floor, as people are waiting for the elevator, they might start a conversation with the person next to someone and get to know someone that they wouldn't otherwise meet. There's another example that I read about, I forget the company, but they were literally creating narrower hallways so that if you're walking down this hallway, you have to look up from your phone to make sure that you don't bump into the person. And if you're looking up and you make eye contact, you might start talking to them. So there are lots of ways that companies are using architecture and space to foment and encourage people to build relationships within the organization beyond sort of the close-knit group that they work with on their functional team. My argument is, as I mentioned slightly before, is that you can create this casual collision without bruises, is what I would call it, right? Without actually physically bumping into the person, you can create the space for this discovery. The other thing that I would perhaps touch upon with serendipity is serendipity is often mistakenly understood as a, a happy accident, something that just occurs and, oh, wow, that was so nice and unexpected. 
But if you look back to to the way the term emerged, it actually refers to a capacity to recognize for opportunity. And so I think part of what we want to foment is the spaces that allow these opportunities to emerge and also develop a sort of skill set in the individuals to recognize and to take advantage of those. So tying it back to sort of the initiative with Spark, if you don't regularly have copy with strangers, it's going to be awkward initially. That's recognized and understood. The idea being, though, that over time you become more comfortable both starting conversation and approaching people that you don't know, such that you're not only getting the benefit of the people that Spark Collaboration introduces you to, but you're also much more likely to, just in the corporate coffee shop, approach that person who's sitting next to you or talk to that person on the elevator because you've developed a sort of social skill set that, that makes you more comfortable and more willing to branch out with other people in the organization. What are your thoughts on open floor plans? Are you familiar with all the science behind it too? It's a very, yeah. it's a very heated topic. I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I think that the logic of what I was talking about before about using architecture to create sort of spaces for people to connect has led for tearing down walls and so that we're all connected and such. I think it's a terribly flawed idea yeah. because you need space as well. You need privacy. And then there's a great article by... Kirsten Saylor in the UK, which I think is titled something like Seeing Isn't Interacting. And so she's doing analysis or she did an analysis of a building in the UK, which was beautifully designed and with glass and open space and such so that you can see basically any part of the office. But that doesn't mean that you actually interact with them. And so I think open spaces confuses the idea of physical proximity with social proximity and also overlooks the fact that you need space if you're going to make an important call. You want to be able to hear what the other person's saying. You don't want to disturb the people around you. And so you can have walls for that to facilitate those sort of more private moments or conversations that you need to have. And you can have other techniques or processes, something like Spark Collaboration, which lets you meet other people in this space. So I think ultimately, I think the fad around open offices is primarily about sort of real estate and spending less money and having more space, but it isn't actually about building relationships, which is the way that it's pitched. But. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I was with somebody, and I forget the term. What's that called when you want to put a nice word on something that's not? Your, your euphemism. Giving, euphemism, thank you. So it was like a euphemistic term for real, let's say money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where How many people can we cram into a particular space? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean, it's just backfiring left and right, and it's amazing how much money, it's almost an industry of architects has been spawned as a result of this. And I know a bunch of companies. I was actually just in a company two weeks ago that just spent a lot of money on this open floor design mm -hmm. and it's just backfiring yeah. left and right. People are now they're eavesdropping on the other conversations. They're hearing things. Even their HR got put in the middle of the of this office and there's a lot of private information yeah. that's now being shared, yeah. which it shouldn't. So I thought So I think a lot of the arguments for open offices are related to what we're talking about. I just don't think that open offices is the way to go about it. Definitely not. Innovation as novel connections. Talk to me. I think innovation, so one of the things that I remember most clearly about Nesta is that innovation is a sort of buzzword, which is often seen almost like a magical, mystical thing, like how did it happen isn't particularly clear. 
And if you start to see innovation in line with what we're talking about with the edge effect or the Stephen Johnson sort of where I, good ideas come from with the, the half hunches, what you see is innovation is taking a set of resources or objects and repurposing in different ways. So I think one of the famous examples is like the iPod, the iPhone and all these devices, which actually had nothing technologically novel about them. It was reconfiguring and repositioning them in different ways for a new purpose. And so from innovation's perspective, I think if you are introducing people from the organization that are systematically separated from each other because of what we were talking about before about the function and the space, and you're introducing to them someone from a different part of the office, inevitably what you have is someone whose process of thinking and lens is different. And so that A, forces the speaker to rethink their assumptions in terms of how to present things, what's meaningful, what isn't. And that other person is going to come with these sort of quote-unquote obvious questions because they don't know anything about the context necessarily. So that then again puts the speaker, the original speaker, in a perspective where they have to rethink things which perhaps they haven't thought about before, or they might be able to see what product or process they're working on, what that might look like in a very different setting. And so each of those leads to or foments innovation by bringing people together in novel ways. So would you say that innovation is one of the best byproducts of your product of Spark? Certainly. I mean, I think I see value across the three. So innovation, knowledge management, employee engagement. And one of the things that I really like about the sort of knowledge management approach, which I was mentioning a minute ago, was that there's this quote of if HP only knew what HP was doing. <laughs> because oftentimes in large organizations... So true, heavily matrixed organizations. They exactly. Don't know. Yeah. They don't even know what someone in the floor above them is doing. And there have been so many occasions where I hear anecdotes or stories of saying, I was working on such and such project. And then I realized that someone in the floor above me was working on the exact same project or I really needed someone to help with this or that. And we were going to set up an external RFP and spend a whole bunch of money to bring someone from the outside to do this. And it turns out that someone across the hallway does this. And so we didn't, didn't need to do the RFP. And so I think that's very tied to what we were talking about before with innovation, but it's a different aspect of it as well. Yeah. It reminds me of, I think it's a famous Reed Hoffman quote. Oh, no, I'm going to botch this. Uh, communication, connection, and collaboration equals innovation hmm. or leads to innovation, something like that. Have you heard of that? I don't think so. No, but, right, yeah. well, now you have. <laughs> now I have, yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about knowledge management via like database and coffee chats. Where Explain that. Right. So with databases, if you, first off, there's only so much that you can recall about your initiative or about a person that you can put into a database. And so from the get-go, it's being, the information that's being inputted is incomplete. And the nature of it is that when you talk to someone, sort of what I was describing a minute ago, you're, what you're presenting and what you're saying is framed by who that other person is. And so if I'm talking to you, if I'm talking to John, or if I'm talking to Mary or whoever it might be, even if I'm talking about the work that I do and the project that I'm on, I will describe it in different ways, not intentionally, not in a deceptive manner, but just naturally. And so the database approach codifies it in a single way, which is limiting. And so in the conversation that I have with you, John, Mary, or whoever it might be, I might get really excited about this aspect of it or bring go down a rabbit hole or something else about the project. You might bring new insights into what I'm doing, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are, 
which then you might say, oh, you should really be talking to Bob, Sally, or whoever it might be. And it would present it in a very different way than I would think of it myself, or just through some sort of search function in a database. And so I'm all for having a database and using it as a tool. But I think too often these approaches go technology first and think that that's sort of the be and an end all and underappreciate the role of networks within organizations to facilitate information flow, not just information flow, but transformation of understanding of that information as well. Where do you see the biggest bottleneck? The biggest bottleneck. The bottleneck of this information, these connections, these relationships. Is it they're just kind of like one and done or they're not communicating regularly versus this database, you'd just be dumping it into this centralized database that's not necessarily mine. So I guess the biggest bottleneck that I see, if I understand your question correctly, would be around what Mark Granovetter talks about in terms of weak ties. So I think that... Mark Granovetter? Granovetter, yeah. yeah. I think that we tend to focus a lot on like the strong relationships and the most important relationships. Perceived important. Perceived important, yeah but overlooked the value of what he calls weak ties. Weak ties being relationships of people perhaps that you've only met once or don't have a very close relationship with. And so he did a study, I think this was in the 70s, looking at how people and where people found jobs. And I think at that point in time, it was perhaps expected or thought that it would be from the people that you have the strongest relationships with and the strongest ties with. But he found out it was actually through this person that you didn't have a close relationship with. And it comes back to part of what we were talking about before about the networks, right? So if you're going to ask sort of your coworkers, your closest buddies, whoever it might be that you have a strong relationship with, it tends to be that those people have similar networks than you. And having similar networks leads to having similar sets of information or access to types of information. If you reach out to someone that you worked with a decade ago or went to college with years around ago or, or someone who's more distant from you, from the social circles that you, you run in, that leads to a whole new set of information and way of thinking about it. And so within the organization, you have the same thing, not necessarily just about career search or looking for work. And so what Spark does is it facilitates and promotes these weak ties, which may not have an immediate value or result in an immediate sort of project, but gives you a different perspective and gives you a different understanding of what you're doing. And six months down the line or a year down the line, you might think like, oh, actually, what we're talking about now, I spoke to Sally through Spark Collaboration six months ago. I bet she'd have a really interesting insights on this. And so then you can weave back and you have access to someone who has a different perspective and who has expertise that you don't have. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Now, with Spark, does it ever, it's an algorithm, setting up random coffee meetings, does it ever recycle through and reinvite the same people? Or is that just something that you're hoping that these individuals would do now on their own to continue the relationship? Yeah, so within a given initiative, it does not repeat. If an admin wanted to like close this initiative and start another one, then it sort of starts fresh. And then it could obviously repeat because it doesn't have that sort of history. Yeah, so we focus on that initial relationship on sparking that connection, if you will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then let the individuals follow up if they find value in it, if they want to, and that's sort of up to them. And not everyone, obviously, not every meetup that you have or coffee connection that you have is going to be life-changing or transforming, and maybe you don't want to follow up with that person 
and it's fine. That's sort of the purpose. But then you'll be introduced to someone who does sort of open your eyes in a new way or introduces you to something new. And then that's the point where the two individuals can follow up and continue working or talking to each other. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about you before we wrap up. I got a, some of my favorite parts of the show is just these random questions. All right. So I want you, I'm going to give you some numbers, a range. I want you to tell me scale of, or out of one to 16, give me a number. 14. 14. How did you choose this line of work? It was a happy accident. <laughs> Serendipity? Serendipity. Yeah. I was shadowing, interning for this uh, leader in Colombia, Colombia, South America, who did a lot of work and talked a lot about social capital and serendipity. And so he's actually the one who introduced me to serendipity. And so then when I got into, when I went to work at Nesta, I was working on like an online training platform for innovation so that people could go through and understand what innovation was and then also workshops for international development agencies like DFID, the Department for International Events in the UK, and uh, UNDP, the United Nations Development Program. And then the randomized coffee trials aspect just sort of occurred. Uh, and occurred because I was tuned to and interested in relationships and in the value of creating space for the unexpected. And so that's how that emerged. And then following that, when I came back from the UK, this is in 2013, I wasn't quite sure what I would be doing next. But actually, before I say that, so I wrote a piece for Nesta, a blog post, which was called Institutionalizing Serendipity via Productive Coffee Breaks. And I really like the apparent contradiction on both sides, right? Institutionalizing serendipity. Serendipity is this thing which it seems to be or is often talked about as something you can't control. How do you institutionalize that? And then coffee breaks, which are generally seen as sort of a waste of time or not at all productive. So how do you make them productive? And so people started reaching out. I think there are around 50 or 60 emails that I got from different companies and organizations from around the world. And one of them was actually from Princeton, which is my hometown and where I was going shortly thereafter. So I said to the guy, hey, actually, I'm going to be in Princeton next week. Instead of talking by phone, we can just grab lunch. And he said yes. And then through that, we had lunch and then we had a great conversation. He was an innovation manager at a pharmaceutical company. And we decided to pilot something similar in the pharmaceutical company. That worked really well. And then through the relationship that we had together, he actually introduced me to my co-founder for Spark Collaboration. So it's an interesting story of how an unexpected path can sort of lead to the creation of a platform to create unexpected paths. And there you go. The irony of that. <laughs> Last one before I let you go is on a very personal side. Give me a uh, number one through 14. Give me a number. Seven. Seven. Split in the middle. Any nervous habits? I'm very fidgety on, and I pace a lot. Damn. All right. Good stuff. All right. I got to give one more. Give me another number. One to 14. Two and a half. Two and a half. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, <laughs> Tell me a day that you've had that you'll never forget. There's, there's obviously many. Well, sort of to keep it in context, I remember one day my co-founder sent me an article and he said, oh, read this. Someone had sent it to him and they thought that it was something that he might like. And so he encouraged me to look at it. He hadn't had a chance to look at it himself either. And I look at it and I'm like, wow, this is very much about what we do and what we're interested in. 
it was an article in the Harvard Business Review. And then midway through, I see that they talk about Spark collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, is that, because Spark is a, a rather common thing that we've seen. And a lot of different companies have used the name or are using something similar. And so it took me a while to realize that they were talking about us. And so that was quite amazing. First to be highlighted in Harvard Business Review, but then also the way that we found out about it. And we could have very easily not found out about it because the author didn't reach out to us, didn't yeah, have any didn't questions. Why didn't reach out? That's so I weird. I have no idea. You would have been happily, heavily uh, quoted. Yes, of course. But so it was very funny to just be reading this article and thinking about, it. should we tweet this? Should we send out information about it? It seems pretty much in line what we're doing. Oh, wait, <laughs> we're highlighted in the article. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you coming in from Minnesota to be here today. I think what you're doing is fantastic. I love it. It very much bodes well with everything that my organization's all about in terms of just really helping to facilitate some world-class relationships. I hope that you keep up the great work. Are there any people in particular that are listening to this that should reach out to you? Are there, is there a typical, is it heads of HR? Is it the C-suite? Who are typically your clients? Partly depends upon the size of the organization. We work a lot with HR. We've worked with, sometimes there's like an innovation or knowledge management department. We've also worked with IT. It depends precisely because it is, by its very essence, cross-department mm -hmm. that's sometimes handled differently in different organizations. Gotcha. So, well, we'll make sure that all your contact information so everyone can reach out to you and get lots of business. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Many thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thank you very much. Make it thanks a great for having day. me. <laughs> thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise. <laughs>